Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 349 of Gifu's Tale. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jana, Lorraine, and Tracy for signing up already. Successful kings don't rule alone. This is especially true for kings who had as much going on as Canute did. And one of Canute's most influential right-hand men was actually his queen. Emma was more than just an advisor. She was wielding considerable power in her own right, and power that likely expanded every time Canute journeyed out of England. But Queen Emma wasn't Canute's only wife. Canute had been married previously. Elf Gifu of Northampton. Elf Gifu was from a noble family of the Midlands, and she had familial links to the lords of Northumbria. And to top it off, she was part of the powerful Wolf dynasty, which had wielded so much power in the days of King Athelred. And so, when King Swain Forkbeard invaded England all those years ago, it made a lot of sense to marry his younger son, Canute, to Elf Gifu because their marriage would seal the alliance between Forkbeard and the Wolf Dynasty. Soon thereafter, Elfgifu gave birth to a son, who they named Swain after his grandfather. And that cemented the dynastic alliance between the powerful invading dynasty and the locally powerful Midlands dynasty. But this was the age of Athelred, and the only thing that was guaranteed during this period was that there were no guarantees. And shortly after the birth, several major figures in the Wolf Dynasty were executed by Athelred and his court during one of the many political upheavals that characterized that era. And it's quite likely that this marriage had something to do with that upheaval. Now, these executions were obviously bad for the Wolf Dynasty, but it was also bad for Forkbeard. You see, marriage was a potent political tool, but it was also largely a one-shot gun. And Forkbeard had used that bullet to ally himself with a dynasty that had just been all but wiped out. And as for Elf Gifu, well, this turn of events was catastrophic. The family members back home who had set up this marriage were now either dead or politically ruined. And her new family, in which she'd just been married into, was probably wondering if she was even worth keeping around now that her political utility was questionable at best. This was a nightmare for everyone involved. And then, suddenly, Forkbeard died. And once again, everything was thrown into chaos. Canute briefly tried to take the reins, but the momentum was against him, and he was ejected out of England by Athelred's loyalists. And there's some debate as to what happened to Elf Gifu during that exchange. You know, whether Canute took his wife and young son along with him when he withdrew, or whether she and the boy were smuggled out later, due to fears that they were probably targeted for execution by King Athelred. But whatever the case, Elfgifu eventually reached Scandinavia and was with Canute. And within a year or so, she gave birth to a second son, Harold Harefoot. And after a time, Canute returned to England as an invader, and he seized the throne for himself. And when he did it, Elfgifu came with him. But everything had changed again. 
when they got married, Canute had been fulfilling his role as a younger son of Forkbeard. He was just a pawn in his father's political ambitions. But now, Canute was king. And he was a king in badly need of allies. The trouble, though, was while Canute's position had changed wildly, Elf Gifu was still the same person that she'd been when she left for Scandinavia. She was still a member of a dynasty that had been politically decapitated. True, she had provided him with two sons, but the king needed more than that. So we're told that Canute set Elf Gifu aside, and he married the politically powerful widow of his rival, King Athelred. And that's how we end up with Queen Emma. But that setting aside and remarriage situation was a bit hairy. I mean, if Unferth had tried to make this move, he would have found himself in a lot of trouble with the church. But Canute wasn't Unferth. He was Canute, a conquering king with a massive army of Yom's Vikings at his command. So rather than making a fuss, everyone just kind of shrugged and let it happen. And besides, Canute was Scandinavian. That first marriage probably wasn't completely in keeping with Christian doctrine anyways, right? And so, with that flimsy excuse, the church found a way to keep their heads attached to their necks. And the king remarried. And that marriage to Queen Emma forged a dynastic link between Canute and the powerful Duchy of Normandy. And it also provided the king with an astute political mind who was already familiar with the ins and outs of the English court. Marrying Emma was one of the shrewdest moves Canute ever made. But the casualty in this political game was Elf Gifu and her two sons, Swain Knutson and Harold Harefoot. Now, there's no record that states that Canute specifically repudiated his first wife. But even without the public repudiation, the fact remains that being set aside was a catastrophic change in Elf Gifu's fortunes. Making matters worse, Queen Emma was clever, and she had her eye on matters of succession. She already had two sons by Athelred. Their names were Edward and Alfred. And like any good medieval noble mother, she was focused on ensuring that her children had the best possible chance at inheriting. Now the boys were left in Normandy under the care of their uncle, Duke Richard II. But Emma and her allies were already looking to bolster their claims to the throne and also undercut the claims of Canute's sons by Elf Gifu. And we know this because the Chronicle itself claims that Harold Harefoot actually wasn't Canute's son. And Florence of Worcester goes one step farther, claiming that Elf Gifu couldn't actually conceive at all. He claims she was infertile. And so faced with that situation, he tells us that she faked her own pregnancies and secretly adopted her sons from two separate people from a cobbler, and from a priest. And then, presumably, she pulled off the greatest feat of sleight of hand of all time right there in the delivery room. Twice. Eat your heart out, David Copperfield. And while I definitely can't prove it, I'm confident that Florence is full of sh**. And the story of Elf Gifu playing three-card Monty with babies was just a fabricated rumor spread in the hopes of delegitimizing Canute's previous children. Which, of course, would clear the way for Emma's children. And actually, this antagonism towards Elf Gifu and her children was so intense that in the praise of Queen Emma, which is essentially Emma's personal account, they don't even mention Elf Gifu by name. And instead, 
they just casually refer to Canute as having a history with, quote, some other woman, end quote. This rivalry was a thing. And the fact that these stories of Elfgifu being a barren, deceitful woman with a talent for close-up magic suggests that even though there was no record of an official repudiation, things for Elfgifu and her sons were still a bit rough after the divorce. Surprisingly, though, it seems that Elfgifu and the king remained close. And despite having a powerful queen as her enemy, she might have continued to move in courtly circles. And interestingly, while King Canute and Queen Emma's marriage began as a political maneuver, it turns out they were quite compatible, and they soon formed a bond beyond politics, and they had a son who they named Hartha Canute. And even then, it appears that Elfgifu still remained close to Canute and to court. Now, we aren't given precise details on the shape of Canute's relationship, and it's possible that he was just really good at maintaining a good working relationship with his ex-wife for the sake of the kids. It's possible. But it's also possible that he had only set Elfgifu aside in the legal sense. Unfortunately, we may never know, because as is the case with much of this period, details are sparse. And that's even more true when it comes to the lives of women. However, even if Canute was on good terms with both of these women... That doesn't mean that Emma and Elfgifu were on good terms. Make no mistake, these were rivals, and they were both working hard to get their sons in position to inherit Canute's various crowns, while disinheriting the sons of the other. And this tension lasted for years. Fourteen years. And so this is where the situation stood in 1030, when King Canute sat at the height of his power, he was now king of England, and he was also the overlord to Denmark, Norway, and parts of Sweden. And his access to Norse power had been expanding. King Håkon Eriksson was his nephew and a close ally, but he wasn't a close family member. And Canute was probably trying to fix that when he arranged a marriage between Håkon and a member of Canute's own dynasty. And dealing with the details of this marriage was likely why Håkon was traveling back from England when he drowned at sea. Hawkins' death changed a lot for Canute, and when a large number of farmers in Norway banded together and fought off Olaf Haraldsson's attempt to seize the Norse throne, and even managed to kill him, well, that changed things even further. You see, back in 1028, Canute needed Hawken because Hawken was a legitimate claimant to the Norse throne, and Canute wasn't. But just two years later, two major claimants of the throne were dead. And Olaf's only direct heir was an illegitimate six-year-old boy named Magnus, who had been born to an English concubine. And as for Harold, well, he was just Olaf's half-brother. He was also only 15 years old. And he wasn't even in Norway because he'd been driven into exile. So neither boy were particularly attractive options for the throne, even at the best of times. And the Norse farmers had just made it quite clear that they were willing to take up a few pitchforks to stay with the line of Canute. So yeah, everything had changed. And now Canute was able to exercise a tremendous amount of power over the future of Norway. And so he decided to use that power to install his son, Swain, as king of Norway. With his ex-wife, Elfgifu, acting as regent. And that means... That Elfgifu had done it. 
Despite the vicious rumors about Swain's parentage, and despite having a politically powerful and brilliant queen as her rival, she managed to find a way to maneuver through the deadly game of courtly intrigue so well that despite being set aside and replaced, her son was now sitting on a throne. Not only that, but Canute trusted her enough that she would be the person actually ruling until Swain, who was probably only about 15 years old at this point, was ready to rule on his own. Elf Gifu had arrived. Or that's probably how it felt at first. But there were limits to this victory. First, her position as regent would only last until her son was ready to rule on his own. Once Swain was old enough, she would have to step back. Furthermore, Canute would eventually die, and one of his sons would inherit his position as overlord. And given the position of Queen Emma, and given the fact that Elf Gifu and her son were given the recently acquired Norse throne, it was quite likely that one of Canute's sons by Emma, possibly Hartha Canute, would be the one to inherit the overlordship. Elf Gifu and Swain had done well, but this really was the lesser of all the available thrones. Emma and her sons were still on top. And as such, it was only a matter of time before her son would be the subject of one of Emma's sons. And given the rivalry, that could mean that her son would be in quite a bit of danger. And then you have the more immediate issues. Norway had a fiercely independent culture and had only recently centralized. Administratively, this was way behind England, and it was also just a lot more wild. The Norse tolerated a degree of violence that must have shocked the conscience of this English noblewoman. So while Elf Gifu had risen far above what many would have expected of her, she still had serious challenges ahead. But she didn't let that slow her down. Instead, Elf Gifu set about governing these strange peoples of the North. And while it might have been tempting to simply import the customs and laws from her homeland of England, as they would have been most familiar to her, she instead decided to reform Norway by pulling from Danish laws and customs. And I imagine that she probably thought that Denmark was part of Scandinavia, and thus it had a lot in common with Norway. And as a result, changes towards the Danish system would have been more welcome. And it also would have brought Norway in line with Knut's vision of providing a greater degree of commonality throughout his kingdoms. And so, drawing on Danish precedent, Elfgifu imposed new taxes upon the public. And she set down new requirements for public service. Reformation requires money and labor, after all. And then to top off her reforms, she set down new penalties for violent behavior. Really, really harsh penalties. She would civilize these wild people, but she'd do it carefully with Danish laws. And I'm sure that probably sounded great on paper, but there were a couple problems with this plan. First, the Norse were not all that pleased with the new rules and taxes. And second, the fact that they were based on Danish laws was not helping the issue. The Norse and the Danes were rivals. By bringing Danish laws and customs to Norway, Elf Gifu was actually insulting the Norse. Which means that immediately upon Elf Gifu taking power, her new subjects hated her. They hated her taxes, they hated her laws, they hated where these ideas were coming from, and now they even hated her son Swain. 
To make matters worse, Elfgifu and Swain brought in Danish advisors and put them in Norse positions of power, which again might have simply been a naive failure to understand the cultural context of what they were doing. Or maybe they just didn't give a f and decided in for a penny and for a pound. It's hard to say what the reasoning was, but it wasn't making them any friends. Norway hated Elfgifu. They hated her so much that they started writing poems about it. And the phrase Elfgifu's time became shorthand for an age of brutal oppression and deprivation. It was bad, and Fear of Canute is likely the only reason why the Norse didn't do to Elfgifu what they did to Olaf. So Elfgifu's rise to power was a bit of a mixed bag. And I wonder if this is one of those circumstances where you take someone who's been powerless and downtrodden and give them a bit of power, and rather than being informed by their trauma, instead they reenact it and become autocratic. It doesn't always happen, but it definitely does happen sometimes. Remember how King Edwin of Northumbria, who had spent a lot of his young life being hunted by a tyrant, eventually became a bit tyrannical when he took the throne? It might have been a bit like that. And this story of Norway being ruled by a half-Dane, half-English king with a full English regent is a strangely pivotal moment for the history of England. What Elfgifu and Swain were doing would have a significant role in what happens to England next. Because here's the thing. As you've been listening to this series on Canute and hearing about his developing empire and learning about how he positioned his sons on influential European thrones and even married his daughter to the heir of the freaking Holy Roman Empire, well, you might have been asking yourself, how, given the titanic power that Canute was amassing, did 1066 happen? How do we end up with the House of Normandy and not the House of Denmark? It often feels like Canute should have become a second emperor in the north, and that England should have, given Canute's power, become another of the Scandinavian territories. Honestly, it feels like English itself as a language should have developed closer to Danish rather than French. So what happened here? Well, Elfgifu and Swain in 1030 weren't just making the Norse unhappy. They were also delegitimizing Canute's right to rule over Norway at all. And by doing that, they were retroactively putting some polish on old King Olaf. You see, King Olaf II was an autocrat. Not only that, but he wasn't all that popular when he was alive. He'd purged his rivals. He'd violently seized power. He was, in many ways, a tyrant. But for the most part, he didn't tinker with Norse culture. There was a structure to Norse life that had been in place for generations. And he didn't mess with that. The fundamental aspects of how the people, the nobles, and the laws interacted stayed more or less intact during Olaf's time on the throne. In fact, the only thing he really did that impacted Norse culture was that he promoted Christianity. And that had put him in hot water. So much so that when he tried to return to the throne as a legitimate claimant on the line of Harald Fairhair, the people fought to give that throne to Canute rather than him. There was a lesson to be learned here. Unfortunately, Elfgifu and Swain don't appear to have learned it. Because while their right to rule appears to have been less directly tyrannical than Olaf's, they were fundamentally changing Norse society in ways that the Norse didn't ask for. 
worse, Elfgifu and Swain were insisting that they become more like the Danes and that they pay for the privilege. So the Norse public began to look back on Olaf II as the days of wine and roses. Moreover, it's not like these new rulers were following the old ways. No, they were also Christian. And on top of that, the Norse were starting to convert. So suddenly their main beef with Olaf, his Christian character, wasn't such a problem. In fact, his Christianity started to look a lot less like an example of his alien views and more like a sign of his righteousness. And in short order, legends popped up lauding Olaf's piety, and an aura of sanctity suddenly surrounded him. Under this new zeal, some of the Norse decided to exhume his body so that it could be reburied at the Church of Nidaros. And lo and behold, when his tomb was opened, they found the body fresh, as if it had only recently been buried. And we know how these things go, right? A cult soon arose at Nidaros, dedicated to the veneration of Olaf. And soon, all throughout Norway, there was a national outpouring of love for Olaf and regret at his defeat. And this popularity quickly became so great that young Magnus, his illegitimate son, began to attract attention. This popularity was so strong, in fact, that even now you can see it in Norway's coat of arms. That axe the lion is holding... That represents King Olaf II as Rex Perpetuus Norvegiae, or the Eternal King of Norway. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, I guess. And failing to read the room makes the heart grow pretty damn resentful. So now, the Norse were all about Olaf II, or, as they soon would start calling him, Saint Olaf. And even a popular ruler would have a difficult time maintaining control in a circumstance like that. And Elfgifu and Swain were not popular rulers. The wolves were circling, and Knut was nowhere to be seen. Because it turned out, he had other issues to handle. There was a conflict brewing with Scotland and Normandy. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join any of our communities, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. One, two,